Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. And I'm reporting to you from Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. Today on the program, my guest is Abigail Wynne Rosewood, author of the novel Constellations of Eve. So I think sometimes the, at least from what I've noticed or observed in the, in the Western world that the kind of romanticism is kind of spoiled our view of relationship that you know romanticism works for the honeymoon stage for when you first meet somebody and things are fairy like and but then once you're past that you know that the the romanticism kind of fails to encompass other uh, aspects relationships and and I think our expectations is what lead to lead to you know failures and and endings okay that was Abigail Wynn Rosewood whose new novel Constellations of Eve is available from Divan the diasporic Vietnamese artists network which is a publishing imprint founded by Isabel Thuy Pelode a scholar of Asian American history and literature, and Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Thanh Nguyen, a past guest on this program. The purpose and the mission of Divan is to promote Vietnamese American literature. This is a publishing venture done in collaboration with Texas Tech University Press. Constellations of Eve is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community founded back in 2006. It has its own monthly book club. The way it works is pretty straightforward. You sign up, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days, and I interview book club authors on this program. For more information and to sign up for the book club, please visit TheNervousBreakdown.com. Today's episode is made possible by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback and ebook editions. There is also an audiobook edition available from Tantor Media 
and Highbridge Audio. It is narrated by yours truly. Be brief and tell them everything is a work of autofiction. It is, I hope, a darkly funny meditation on creativity, on the act of creation. It is about a writer struggling to write his next book while trying to come to grips with his son's disabilities set against a backdrop of ecological catastrophe and escalating human insanity in contemporary Los Angeles. It's about a lot of things. Hopefully there are some laughs. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available right now from IG. So I want to give an update on an event of mine. It was supposed to happen on June 5th, but it got postponed due to COVID. So I was going to read on Sunday, June 5th at Stories Books in Echo Park here in Los Angeles, but that got postponed. It is now happening this Sunday, June 12th at 7 p.m. I will be reading as part of an autofiction series hosted by Caitlin Forst. Other readers include Kara Blue Adams, a recent guest on this show, and Alexandra Jade and Oliver Zarandi and uh, others. So if you're in Los Angeles and you want to come out and see me read from my book, please join us on June 12th at 7 p.m. at Stories. Otherwise, I, you know, I'm doing all right. It's almost summertime officially. It feels like it's summer here weather-wise, but my knee is improving. For those of you new to the show, I broke my kneecap earlier this spring. That was fun. I fell off a bike and I got my brace off recently. I got the go-ahead to go hiking, which looks a little bit funny because I have to move more slowly than I usually do. And I have two hiking poles to sort of help me balance. I don't know how many people at this stage of things would be hiking, but my doctor said I could. I'm trying not to be you know, hard-headed uh, about these things. I'm trying to just follow orders. But he looked at me and said, if you want to try it, go hiking. Use your poles. Keep yourself steady. That's what I've been doing. And, you know, I think part of it is that I was sort of getting comfortable doing nothing. You get injured like this, you sort of have to surrender to it. And so I did. I was trying, like I said, to be well-behaved, not to be stubborn, not to exacerbate the injury by trying to do things too soon. But then as I got into it, I was like, wow, I kind of like this. Just lying here in bed, keeping my leg elevated. And it started to uh, make me realize that I could just backslide into this mode of living permanently. (laughs) It's very easy to do. I've never been, this is the first time in my entire life that I've ever been inactive for this long. It's a new experience for me. I guess there are a lot of people who just live like this. (laughs) It's a revelation that you can just sit on your ass, do nothing, not exercise at all. But uh, I can't do that. I've got responsibilities. I've got to keep myself fit, or so I tell myself. And I should say, too, this is another thing. I've been eating mostly raw food while I was healing. I think maybe it sped up the healing process. And I have not had anything to drink. I basically not drank any alcohol since I got injured, which I didn't plan on, but I just don't feel like it. You know, I'm in bed, got a busted knee. I don't want a glass of wine. 
or whatever I would normally have. And maybe this will be permanent. I used to have like one drink a day. That's where I was. And then now I don't have any. I just lie there and like eat berries and (laughs) try to get healthy. I don't know. Anyway, I'm feeling good. Oh, and I got, uh, I got my new other people t-shirts in the mail. For those of you who are unaware, there's new merch, the other people 2022 collection is now available. You can find uh, the link at the show's website, otherppl.com. Some cool new t-shirts. And I bought a bunch of them because I wanted to see the different colors and styles. Just wanted to see the quality of the product with my own eyes. So I got a, you know, I got some for me. I got some for my wife. Like the whole family got one. <laughs> and uh, they're very soft. I am pleased with their uh, fit. And I have been wearing them this week. I think it's like three out of three out of seven days this week. I wore some new other people gear, so I've been walking the dog and so on, fully branded. Which, you know, that's that's questionable behavior. But I like the t-shirts; they're comfortable. So if you want another people t-shirt, go to otherppl.com. Scroll down; you'll see it. They're good looking. And they are very soft. Last thing I want to remind you of is that I do have an email newsletter. I try to remember to uh, tell you guys this. It's very simple. It goes out once a week. That's it. I'm not going to inundate you with emails. But it's it's an email newsletter. It goes out in the middle of the week. It will remind you of the latest episode. And then I share a small handful of things that I've read online that caught my attention things that I found helpful. You know, it's just like a list. That's it. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, you can do that at bradlisty.com or at otherppl.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. Just sign up. It's easy. It's free. If you want to hear from me once a week via email. So my guest today, again, is Abigail Wynn Rosewood. Her new novel, Constellations of Eve, is available from Divan in collaboration with Texas Tech University Press. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Abigail Wynn Rosewood is a Vietnamese and American author. Her debut novel, If I Had Two Lives, is out there from uh, Europa Editions. Abigail's writing has been published in a wide variety of places including Time Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, Lit Hub, Bomb, and elsewhere. She is also the founder of Neon Door, an immersive art exhibit. Constellations of Eve is Abigail's second novel. It is a philosophical fable of art and fate. And it explores the tiny, even imperceptible moments that shape who we love, whom we obsess about, and how we decide what to live for. It's a fascinating and immersive novel about the ways in which our lives unfold and all the mysteries related to that. Why do we turn out the way we do? 
Why do we relate to people the way that we do? Why do we end up with certain people in our lives while others, you know, either don't show up or go away or whatever it is? So it's a great book about relationships, a great meditation on relationships and fate. And I very much enjoyed it. And I loved meeting Abigail Wynn Rosewood. What a delightful human and what a great conversation we had. I'm very happy to share that with you right now. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Abigail Wynn Rosewood. And her new novel, One More Time, is called Constellations of Eve. In New York, um, it's about three hours from the city. I'm living in a cabin, kind of very, very remote and kind of surrounded by trees. So in the summer, I can't really see neighbors, even though they are there are neighbors nearby, but I can't quite see them. Inside the cabin, it's mostly plywood. <laughs> it's not very well insulated. So I can hear squirrels like running back and forth on the ceiling, flying squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> well, this reminds me kind of of the house in the woods in your novel. Is this like is this kind of the basis for that, or am I misreading? So this actually, um, I move. We moved up here after um, I've already written a novel and everything. So it's kind of like life follows art instead of art follows life. Okay, okay, yeah. No, maybe you were there. Yeah, I was predictive. You were you were manifesting this with your book, and now there you are up in the woods. And I had read that you were in a reverse immigration situation where you had moved back to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, which is the country of your birth. So now you seem to have come back to the States. So I'm actually only here for about three weeks to kind of, you know, put everything in order, and then I'm, I officially leave on June 15th. I was just in Vietnam um, for a month to kind of figure out where I'm going to stay and live and stuff like that. But now I'm back to kind of finalize all the documents so that I could move for good. To Vietnam? Yes. Okay. And we're going to get to that because I think that's interesting, like this kind of full circle situation that you seem to be in with respect to immigration and like nationhood status. Is that a way of putting it? <laughs> but <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> I, I want to start by talking about your book, which is, as I was saying before we started, really inventive. And I always try to go in blind when I'm reading books in general. And I think in particular for this show, I don't like to know too much about it so that it can be, I don't know, immersive. And I don't get too loaded up with expectations or something. And so this book, it, it kind of teaches you how to read it. You know, it took me a second to figure out what was going on. I didn't know that there were like three different uh, versions of a love story, which I think is maybe a way to put it until I was a ways into it. You know what I'm saying? It's a book that, that you have to sort of figure out. And I'm curious to know how you figured it out creatively like how like how did you get to the point where you knew you were going to do this kind of book which is kind of a triptych in its structure uh yeah that's a good question so I think originally when I started out I was just writing something like a what-if scenario um and I was it was inspired by you know my own struggle in my relationship 
with my husband. And so I was just writing track, like be starting with one scenario and then adding another, like how our life could turn out differently. So I think, you know, in a way, the writing itself kind of taught me how to figure out the rules of the novel. Once I had a draft of these three separate incarnations of the same story, I had to figure out the framework of how the rules would make sense to me. Well, it's it's funny because I think this book speaks to an experience that we all have at one time or another where you wonder about the decisions that you've made in your life and the directions that you've taken and how these seemingly inconsequential moments, conversations you might have, little tiny micro choices you might make can end up having this enormous impact on your fate. And so it can be tempting to wonder like, wow, if I had gone left instead of right, or if I had done this or instead of that, what would have happened to me? And this book is fun for that reason, because you sort of get to see, and it can also be harrowing, you know, because you get to see, but I can see how if you're dealing with, uh, you know, a difficult, challenging period in a, in a relationship or just in life in general, how you could get into this mode as a way of trying to sort it out. Yes, I think, especially, you know, I I really do believe that even beautiful, great marriages need to um, need some sort of endurance. (laughs) And so I think that was my own way of trying to figure it out and working it out. And like you said, it is tempting to kind of ask yourself, what would these decisions lead me to and sometimes the mundane choices lead to you know the change in mundane choices can lead to really grave consequences and then but then other times I feel like you know huge impactful event actually won't change the outcome much at all so it's a balance I think but I I, I like to play with that I, I find it sort of haunting that you can do absolutely nothing and everything can change. Like that too can be yes. <laughs> consequential, you know? So. Yeah, I, I, I've always, uh, one time I went to, I, I believe, a talk on language anthropology, and I was very haunted by what the, you know, the anthropologist said about if you locked everybody in a cave, you know, for for 50 years, and when they, when they came in, they they share language, and then 50 years later, even if they don't interact with anyone, when they leave that cave, 50 years later, when they come out, the language will have changed and morph on its own without any sort of external influences. And I found that really fascinating. Yeah. Well, things are yeah, things are fluid, and things. Uh, I mean, I guess in in your like from your perspective of life and death, which I think is lensed through Buddhism, as I've read about you, you know, there's the the impermanence of all phenomena, and then there's also this the concept of reincarnation and the way that things are not finite and repeat or work in a like a a cyclical fashion. I'd like to hear you talk about how you conceived of constellations of Eve through a Buddhist lens and in particular through the lens of reincarnation? Uh, 
sure. So I think because I, you know, I grew up going to um, the temple in Vietnam to visit my father who passed away before I was born. I think I always have a really strong spiritual connection um, with with the idea of reincarnation maybe it's maybe from a childhood standpoint it be it was a, almost a comforting thing to believe that I could find my father anywhere I look and and I tend to find him uh, sort of manifested in nature or you know I, I I feel like I see signs in things especially when I need them and so I, I do believe in in reincarnation and 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 I do believe that things are cyclical and I think also in some ways because of the way that you know I grew up through it listening to my parents love story my mom sort of devotion to him and even these many years later I hope that they can meet again you know and and for her sake too because he is the great love of her life and she doesn't seem to have moved on, you know, all these years later. And so maybe I always have this wish that that it is true, that eventually they will meet again. May I ask what happened? He died before you were born? Uh, yes. So he passed away in a car accident when my mom was pregnant with me. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. And then you would go to visit him at a Buddhist temple? Yes. The temple is in Ho Chi Minh City and um, it's where all of our family urns are. So he, his urn is next to my great-grandparents and a lot of our extended family members uh, live in this temple. What's the name of it, the temple? This is, this is actually a good question because I feel like I always grew up going there and then nobody ever told me the name. So I never, <laughs> to me, it's just the temple. The it's temple. the only one I go to. So I actually can't tell you. That's so funny. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know the name. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny because I was raised Catholic, but then have become more Buddhist in my adult years. And I think in particular have studied Vietnamese Zen because of the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh. And then he was just, he just passed away and there was this big, uh, wonderful ceremony for him in Vietnam. Uh, and he lived at a, a temple, but I'm now forgetting the name of it. I think I was wondering if it was the same temple, but I don't even know if it's in Ho Chi Minh City or where it would be. But anyway, I, I feel strangely, I'm kind of surprised to have this in common with you. I didn't expect, I don't think in my life to end up at Vietnamese and Buddhism, but here I am. <laughs> wow, that's, do you, may I ask you what, like, led you to that? Reading, reading, mm -hmm. you know, just books. And I started years ago, I went to college in Boulder in Colorado, which is a very Buddhist, it's probably as Buddhist of a city as you can live in, in America, or at least it used to be because of the Naropa University and, um, like the Beats and Ginsburg, you know, Ginsburg and Chogim Trungpa and all that kind of stuff. So it was there. Like there were like three or four Tibetan gift shops in Boulder oh, wow. when I lived there. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I just, I think I got curious for that reason. And then I started reading books and 
I found them compelling and I just kept reading. And then it's the same way that it works with literature, you know, like you read a book and within that book is referenced another book or another author and you kind of follow the breadcrumb trail. And I eventually came to the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, which for me is the most lucid and well done. It's very simple in its prose, but it cuts deep. And I don't know, I've, I just became a huge fan. And then I went pretty much all the way or a pretty long way down the rabbit hole with him. So I feel a connection. Yeah, I, I, I love his works. Actually, his his uh, very thin but very powerful book on how to love really kind of uh, carried me through the tough time in my rela- relationship. Um, it was something I read over and over to sort of remind me that that you know it was something that I can work hard for and that it was worth to keep going and that I and that that in a way you know we all think that love is intuitive and in some ways it is but um, in some ways we can be we can all be taught to love a little better I think I've read that book by Thich Nhat Hanh I've read him speak about this sort of thing just like the issue of attention you know, to be, to give someone your full attention and to be there for them and uh, how difficult that can be. <laughs> I guess it's simple. It's like simple in, in theory, but difficult in practice sometimes. And I don't know. I think that we think of intimate relationships as this kind of like extremely powerful and even like magical or mystical union, which I guess on some level they are. But it's also like a kind of fracturing, you know, the, an intimate relationship shows you who you are, kind of breaks you open. And maybe that is not talked about as much in the culture. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful and, and true that it breaks you open. Yeah, the I remember, you know, I actually used the line from Han in my novel that love is as simple as interest. Um, it's just being interested in someone and giving them the attention and, you know, the, the focus in that moment in time. But, you know, it's easy to go into these things if your perspective on it is colored by the culture or by some like pop song. <laughs> it can be easy to go into a, a relationship like this. And then when it fails to meet those expectations to feel like it's a kind of failure or that it's not right. And... I think people sometimes get tripped up by that. I think that it's just a a long and evolving process and there are going to be ups and downs just like in any long and evolving process in nature, you know, there's coming together and there's moving apart and there's going to be hiccups and ruptures and difficult periods. And I think that's in the aggregate, the kind of beauty of it. Maybe, I think maybe this is what your book you know, speaks to a lot of the time, you know, not only in the intimate relationship between Eve, who is the book's protagonist and centerpiece, but in the relationship between all of the main characters, between Eve and Liam, between Eve and her best friend, Pari, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and then uh, Eve and Blue. I mean, these characters take on different incarnations in the different sections of the book, but you've created this kind of constellation of characters and you've definitely portrayed the different ways in which they can relate to one another um, as like 
a couple or as a mother and child or as a, as friends. And I don't know, maybe all human relationship is more complicated than we wish it were, or takes more work to really make it good. You know, the investment of time and attention, it requires a, a good amount of commitment from us. I think so. I think sometimes the, at least from what I've noticed or observed in the in the Western world that the kind of romanticism has kind of spoiled our view of relationship that, you know, romanticism works for the honeymoon stage for when you first meet somebody and things are, you know, just fairy like and, but then once you're past that, you know, that the, the romanticism kind of fails to encompass other uh, aspects of relationships and i think our expectations is what lead to <laughs> lead to you know failures and and endings yeah and i i uh you know i with all those characters i feel like even though they miss each other a lot of times they miscommunicate i do feel like there is a bond that kind of keep them returning and returning and even through maybe even through that failure they continue to pursue the connection and I don't I I, I don't actually know if that's like anti-romanticism or not but it is my way of trying to explore the idea of you know maybe just persistence I mean, that there's something to be said for persistence in a long relationship of any kind. You're going to have to persist. Like, even if it's just with friends, you have down times with friends too, or a friend will disappoint you or you'll get in, you know, you'll get into some sort of fight, uh, or you'll just lose touch for a while, but then you'll come back together and you'll, you know, you just sort of move through things. And if you don't have some of that, especially I think in a marriage, probably going to be pretty tough uh, <laughs> there's a endurance is a part of it right <laughs> <laughs> yeah endurance sport <laughs> yeah i think it, with friendship it's it's interesting like you know i'm in my early 30s and with like a lot of the life changes like i'm we're expecting our first kid congratulations uh, yeah, thank you thank you so i'm i'm going through that you know, those changes about friendship and, and, uh, and like you said, like they will come, some will come and some will return and, and I've had, you know, unexpected returns and from really old friends. And then I've had, you know, more, more recent friends that have faded or friendship that faded that I don't expect to fade forever, but maybe, you know, that will return in at, at a different time in my life. I feel like having a baby or maybe publishing a book too. Like those are good litmus tests for friends. Like you'll find out who shows up, <laughs> you know, or who checks in, you know, like those kinds of things. Like uh, I feel like maybe there's an, it's a, it could be a good indicator. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, 
a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And I want to ask you uh, about the theme of beauty, because this is so, so much at the heart of all of, all of this book, all the different sections of this book. It's a very sensual book. Like it's, con- it's concerned with like the sensual experience of life and it doesn't shirk from any of it. There's an unflinchingness to your like worldview in this book and to the way, the ways in which you address the intimate and the things that often go unsaid or unobserved. You take us right there, especially when it comes to the body and to relationships and to the emotional landscapes of these characters and to their intimacies. And there's also along with the beauty, the ugliness, like this is also a a thing I notice about your work is the dichotomies that exist within it. You're very careful to present the beauty and the ugliness often in close conjunction, the darkness and the light, the way these things can't exist without the other. It's kind of another Buddhist notion that seems to be like a guiding principle for you. Am I on the right track or am I? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in pairs of opposites in general, you know, and, and that I really, I feel like you can, I can't really be interested in life without dealing with death or like I can't really be interested without in beauty, without ugliness. I think they're really straddling the same line and, and that's that, that's actually where I'm most interested in is when does beauty like you know along let's say along a straight line when does it start to feel ugly so in in the book Eve is very has a very kind of torturous relationship with her friend Perry and I was actually thinking that other than you know her own character to me Perry is kind of this personification of what it means to be for an artist to be obsessed with a t- uh, with a subject and how, why we keep returning and returning to the same topic and why painters you know keep you you know like van gogh why why did he use the color blue all the time or the color yellow all the time and you know and for me why am i obsessed with certain topics that i can't seem to write myself out of you know every time i sit down to write i would think oh I'm, it's gonna be really different this time and then i keep going back as though there's a kind of like literary destiny that is outlined for me without my control i think that when it comes to beauty this question of beauty and where it starts to turn to ugliness and just this relationship between beauty and ugliness is very fascinating. And I've thought in the past, uh, I might have even talked about it on this show once or twice, about like, when does a person reach peak beauty? <laughs> like, if a person is 
on a you know some sort of like time you're on some sort of timeline in your existence or in this incarnation i know it's all in the eye of the beholder but is there a point like a specific point at which that you like peak and then start to tip down into like you know the, the slow disintegration there has to be right you would think but it's, it's like maximum ripeness or something like a piece of fruit and then i also love this idea which i think i get from some sort of buddhist like dharma talk where somebody was like asking about their romantic obsession and they were like you know i just find this woman so beautiful and I can't stop thinking about her. It's driving me crazy. I feel like I'm attached. You know, I have attachment. And the uh, the teacher was like, you know, what you should do is you should imagine her like going to the bathroom or dying and like <laughs> disintegrating. It was like this kind of, kind of like a, it was kind of strong medicine. But I was like, that might not be the worst advice in the world. Like if you think, if you just are so fixated on somebody and kind of intimidated by their beauty and you know how this is with romantic obsession. Like maybe it's time to imagine them decaying and doing all the things that bodies do <laughs> and maybe like take them down a notch in that way. So I don't know. I guess your book in some kind of uh, like oblique way reminds me of this stuff because Pari in particular is so much the embodiment of this like incredibly powerful beauty, you know, like it seems to overwhelm everyone she comes into contact with. And that's a fascinating person to be. Uh, I can't, you know, imagine being like that, like a, you know, just one of these people who like, they walk into a room and everything just like goes in their direction, you know, yes. uh, because eventually that is going to go away. Yes. And that's got to be hard for them, right? <laughs> yes. I think that's very tragic to, to begin with so much power. And, and because if you, especially if you're born with it, it's even more tragic because you haven't learned how to master it or so I think when it does go away that's when that's when the lessons and the trials really come in and then you have to discover you know maybe a different underbelly of, of, of what what it means to live without something you're you, you've taken for granted I think of like supermodels you know, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. My mind goes to them. You know, you, you become like anointed when you're like 16 years old. And then by the time you're 40, I guess, or maybe even younger, it's a pretty short life cycle. It seems like it's kind of a cruel business, but I don't know. That's got to spin your head a little bit. I bet that would be difficult, especially if you start really young and everyone's sort of clapping for how beautiful you are. And then that starts to go away. The clapping stops. Like you better have a, a good therapist <laughs> or yeah. like you have your head really screwed on, you know, that's gotta be a weird disorienting experience. Yeah. I, I often think about how celebrities can deal with, you know, their, with their blessings. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, that's not easy <laughs> to deal with beauty no. and fame, but I, I do remember there was one actually, um, meditation exercise by Thich Nhat Hanh that recommends that you meditate on your own like disintegrating corpse like picture yourself kind of you know as a dead body and 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 just meditate through as you watch the flesh kind of disintegrates and it's actually very very hard to do I've never actually managed or been able to sit with it myself or for very long at all. 
I think to some people, they'll be like, God, that's hardcore. Or that's morbid. But it's also, I think, a useful thing to do. It's all, it's going to happen. Right? Like no matter how much we wish that it does, it weren't, you know, it's coming. You better, I think it's good to face up to those realities. And I think that there is something like, I, I know people could view it as like just morbid and grim, but I think it's something useful about reminding yourself even on a daily basis of the impermanence of things and just the, the core reality of our disintegrate, like coming disintegration. You know, I think maybe that can give you maybe a bit more urgency in the way that you live. I totally agree. I think I have a practice like every morning I lie an incense to my father and I don't I don't have like, you know, anything fancy like an altar or anything like that. I just sort of you know, right next to like the espresso machine type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um but just say like a short prayer and um and I and uh and I think because I I think about him so often that it does remind me of like my own mortality and and like you said the urgency of life like I'm constantly feeling like life is too short and I am only just like beginning to have a family but I'm already feeling like everything is ending I just feel like I don't have enough time mm, yeah I mean a couple things come to mind first of all like once you have children suddenly you're like, wow, things, you, you, I think you do develop an acute sense of the speed of life and this feeling of, oh, yeah, because you just want to be with them. You're like, okay, but this is running out, so I better make the most of it. Uh, whereas I think prior to having kids, I had less of a, less of a sense of that. And then hearing you talk about your father, a man you never met who died before you were born and what a big role he still plays in your life. And this may be a mischaracterization of it, so please correct me if, if you have a different take, but it seems to me that if you have a, a, like a figure, especially a parent in your life whom you never met, that this person lives for you as a kind of narrative. Like all your life, you were just told stories of this person, and that's what you carry, and that's how you kind of construct your idea of them and maybe even your relationship to them. That's interesting to me. Uh, like how that works. And then also it's interesting to me at the level of you being a writer, you know, as someone who has been carrying this, like this vital narrative your whole life, you know, uh, it makes some sense to me that you would then be the creator of narratives. Does any of that register with you? Have you thought along yeah. these lines? Yeah, that, that resonates with me a lot. All I had growing up was narrative. And I think because of my age, up until my 20s, all those narratives have been positive and, and wonderful, you know, about him. And so I had a, an idealized image of who he was for a long time. And then started to, in my mid-20s, is when I, people like my grandmother um, started to open up more about kind of darker facets of who he was and my mom I believe she gave me her diary when I was 23 that had accounts that she never told me about growing up about him that was more difficult but at the same time made him a fuller person for me 
and also, you know, let me know a lot more about their marriage and that it, and actually now I, I really appreciate that. But, you know, thinking back about beauty and ugliness is, is that, that it's almost like the rise in in the narrative of his beauty. And then at some point that mirage was kind of broken. But then that's when, that's when the writer and I think like the artist comes in and that's when I, I think our roles as, as writer and artist is to see or, or to use or, see those materials from both sides as beautiful and make them beautiful and not necessarily only work with the ideals, but also, you know, the hard truth. Why are we so resistant to the hard truth? I feel like people are so shamed and so protective, even, even, you know, not outside, I'm talking about outside the realm of literature, outside the realm of cinema or television or the ways that we depict relationships. I have a suspicion, maybe I'm wrong, that if you really had like a hidden camera on just about any relationship, <laughs> like we're all monsters and we're all dealing with, you know, it's like, it's such a mess. It's such a mess. And it's hard to capture maybe in art, which is maybe part of it. Maybe it's not resistance to the truth. Maybe it's just that nailing it down is just a lot of hard work and it's difficult to render. But do you have a similar hunch? Like, don't you think that that's probably true? That if you really had a look at even the people who seem the happiest, you know, and you're like, wow, they, they must have the best thing going ever. If you really looked behind the curtain and had like 365 days of footage to go through. Probably, oh, God. Yeah. It, it, probably would be, uh, it probably would be every bit as messy as anything else, you know, to some degree or another. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's that to me is where the beauty really lies. But I I think most people don't believe don't they don't think that perhaps, or they are f afraid of of um of being witness of their um you know not that not their best self being represented. I I remember having this conversation with a friend who always sort of had this image of my relationship with my husband and she she sort of idealized my relationship and and so when I was sharing some stories with her that wasn't matching that she actually sort of like swatted me away and was like just let people have their fantasy <laughs> <laughs> you know and I was like okay <laughs> people you know, want their so. yeah people want that fantasy maybe I do too to some extent I mean I can fall for a good romantic comedy you know it's nice it's a nice little dream to be inside of but it you know there's definitely a split when you're actually in like most of the stars of romantic comedies are divorced <laughs> that should tell us all we need to know and uh i've always liked too i read something once about like the quakers which i don't know much about but they referred to marriage as the little church I don't think you have to be religious to understand what that means or to like get something from it. But that's kind of how it is. It's like this little like, or maybe a little crucible, <laughs> uh, intimate relationships, you know, they, they will expose you eventually. Yeah. Like you say, even if you don't mean to, uh, you know, it's like a church in that you become confessional just by the day, the way you live there are things you just can't hide about yourself. <laughs> yeah, when you live with somebody 24-7, like eventually <laughs> yeah. the truth will emerge, you know. 
Uh, I want to talk to you about female friendship because that, that is also what this book is very much about, this relationship between Eve and Perry. And uh, you talked a little bit about artistic obsession and this, you know, this uh, beauty ideal. But also, uh, I want to talk with you about myth-making as a necessary ingredient in relationships which I think we've kind of been talking about with the way we kind of mythologize our romantic partner, you know, and then eventually that mythology gets shattered. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then also, you know, but there's, there is something of myth to like one's history, like your, your romantic history, the how we met story and, oh, and then this happened and this was difficult, but we got through this, like you are building a story, but where I understand less is the way that myth-making exists in female friendships do you think that there is a distinguishing, are there distinguishing factors to that kind of relationship versus like male friendships or intimate relationships between a man and a woman or a woman and a woman or, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think between, between male friendships, there, there are plenty of myth making too, but I guess I'll speak to the female ones since that's, I'm more familiar with that, and um, I do think that that we all require some sort of necessary lie about each other, and and then you and I think the more intense the friendship is, sort of the more layered and more complex the myth is, and it's really when when one person as part of the architect of that myth start to <laughs> you know, maybe add secret rooms or start to pull away and chip away at at the mansion of, of the friendship that I think that's then then the foundation starts to kind of crumble. And I do I, I do find that the 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 coming together of a lot of female friendships can almost be romantic in a sense that, that if you if I feel like I really um, if you really surrender yourself to any sort of relationship, it becomes sensual. And, and you know, and maybe that's, that has something to do with, with age. Like, it depends on, like, the where you are in your life. Like, if I think it's, it's a little bit different after marriage and then you become a parent and, you know, you, you shift away from, 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 that, from those other narratives – but maybe in, in, in our, you know, teenage years and in our early 20s, we were more present to, to build these other, you know, to, to build these other mansions or, you know, architecture of friendship. Makes me think of childhood friendships and why they're so powerful. You know, maybe we just have more time. There's more layers. And yes. There's also something more effortless maybe about building those layers when you're children versus trying to make friends as adults, which can be done, but I find it to be a lot harder to make like those really strong bonds, you know, and I think a lot of it is just a function of time. It's just, you don't get to spend as much time together as adults. You're seeing people once a month sometimes, and it's just hard to kind of build that foundation. But when you grow up together, you're seeing each other in school every day and having all these experiences together, it gets solidified. Yes. And I think, you know, 
even a really simple memory, like let's say building a sandcastle with a childhood friend, it becomes so enormous in in like our memory bank that I can't, I don't know if there's like a comparable thing after, you know, making friends as an adult. And it's almost like you have to be very deliberate uh, to, to form to form these connections. Otherwise, it's just the memories are just sort of, you know, eating in a restaurant, going to a bar, like right. over and over and over. Remember when we had sushi that one time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I think I, I envy people who have, because there are adults, I think, who are actually quite good at it. They can, they're skilled at building friendships and remembering people. And they have a kind of effortless social grace and an inexhaustible energy. And, you know, I know a few people like that. They're rare, but they do exist. And I don't know, I hope they write a book about it so I can learn how they do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds amazing. Uh, when it comes to female relationships, I want to talk with you if you, if you don't mind about the relationship with your mother, you mentioned, or your relationship with your mother, because you mentioned earlier how she gave you her diary and how this enabled you to form kind of a fuller understanding of your father as a like three-dimensional being instead of uh, maybe an idealized version. But you have said in the past that as complicated as she is, she remains one of the biggest driving forces behind all that I write. What do you mean by that? She's part of that that subject that straddles beauty and ugliness so effortlessly that I keep returning to. And and I think I, I, I think she's the most interesting person in the world that I will ever meet or will ever um, have ever met and will ever meet. Because she's so full of contradictions, and you know, I think James Hillman, um, he's a philosopher, uh, psychologist. He's he has said people who are very well adjusted, you know, are that you can just figure it out. But <laughs> but for for people with a lot of psychosis, I would I would think like my mom, I can't ever quite pin her down. I can't figure her out. And I think I think it's it's my it's my life's task to to uh, to do so. But yes, she's she's a big uh, driving driving force behind all my art. I would say. Is she an artist herself? Do you have would you have family lineage of people who are creatives? Uh, no, she's a, a businesswoman. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah complicated <laughs> <laughs> very complicated and i think you know with even in her diary um when she writes about my father there is that that romantic idealization but it's it's because i'm matching up those facts with what my grandmother says and the events so for example you know she she would talk about certain times when my father worked on a boat and and kind of gloss over a time that he was briefly arrested and what their relationship was going through and then I had to kind of then so that in in the diary that was it like this you know it's the first time I've heard of it but then I when I follow up with my other extended family members 
my grandmother kind of, kind of chuckle. She's like, kind of like, oh, where, where did you hear this? You know, and <laughs> you're like, I have it in writing right here. <laughs> like it's just been, you know, it's been, I think, just not ever spoken about for so long. So when when I he- hearing it from my grandmother's perspective, I realized like how much my mother endured as well. And but but she won't ever admit that my my father has done any cause her any pain ever like he to her to this day remains um perfect that's fascinating right (laughs) i've seen i've seen people in in my lifetime i've seen people lose spouses you know go go through tragic loss like untimely death and i've seen the surviving spouse go on to find a new relationship and remarry and kind of move forward in that way I've also seen surviving spouses not and kind of remain devoted to the lost spouse like for a lifetime. And I guess it's to each their own. I can't bring myself to sit in judgment. I think maybe from like a like a pop psychology standpoint it's like you should probably move on, right? Like give it a, give it some time. I remember George Carlin doing an interview, the late comedian, and he was talking about losing his wife. And how he gave himself a year. He's like, I'm gonna mourn for a year. Like he gave himself a fixed time, and then he's like, and then wow. I got it, and then I got to get on with it, kind of thing. If I'm remembering, wow. yeah. And then he did, and he ended up meeting somebody else and falling in love and having like a great kind of second act. But I don't know. Do you have feelings about this? Do you think there's a way that it should be done, or is it kind of uh, to each person to decide? Oh, I don't. It's hard because I don't think that that life should just stop. Like I don't think that anybody should, you know, deliberately, in a way, stop evolving emotionally and get stuck in in a time capsule. I I, I think life is there to be lived. So yeah, I, I do. I don't know if I advocate. Like moving on, I, you know, that's that's such a hard concept. But I'm really. I'm really in, intrigued <laughs> by setting a timeline. Like I've heard about uh, relationship experts suggesting that, you know, maybe at the beginning of a relationship, you should decide when it's going to end or like, you know, decide sort of a deadline and then check in with each other in sort of three years and, and discuss like, do we still want to be together instead of having this expectation that it would just go on and on and on to have a, have a time work around your relationship and you know and and like anything else there's a deadline and if if somebody wants it to end when the three year comes there should be no hard feelings because that that is when it's supposed to expire uh, yeah check check back with me in three years let me know how that goes <laughs> I'm sure it'll be just a clean break totally uncomplicated but i don't know yeah i kind of i'm, I'm kind of on board with you i think life is to be lived and you should know you can't really stop evolving even if you even if you want to fix yourself in time it's a fallacy you're not you're evolving whether you like it or not but you might be attached and clinging you know to some romanticized idealized version of the past that could be blocking growth in the present right or could be preventing you from fully enjoying life or something but it's it's easier said than done it's easy i think to sit on the outside and and say that and then it's another thing to be grieving the loss of somebody who was like really 
a powerful relationship for you? Like that's got to be super difficult. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I I have witnessed that, but um, I, I mean, I have had thoughts, you know, that I'm not sure if I could move on if something were to happen to my husband, like, it, you know, like death or something like that. It's that's on my mind a lot, uh, I guess, because of the random way in which that happened to my father. So maybe because of the example that my mom has, has set, I'm, I tend to think like, oh, I'm not going to be able to move on, that I'm not gonna, yeah, that I won't have anything like this ever again. Hmm. But you never know. Yeah, you really don't. You really don't know. <laughs> uh, I want to talk to you about writing, the writing of this book, and in particular in which the way the writing of this book relates or compares to the writing of your first book. You have said that the second book was harder because it needed to be more intentional. You just talk about the different experiences between first novel and second book. Sure. Um, I think with my first novel, there's a kind of innocence in in the way I was approaching it. So I think I think in you know, of course, I was in my twenties when I began it, but. I was almost writing like the way a child was, you know, it's like totally raw and, and, I, and, and because it's, it just, it's been culminating for a really long time. Whereas with my second book, I felt like, like a lot of that, you know, I always approach my work in that kind of like with a seed of feeling, but I think with the second one, it it was challenging in a different way. Like I I wanted in a way I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted it to be a more difficult book, um, and I wanted to you know play with it more structurally and more be be more deliberate in like the art making process. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure, sure. I get the idea of wanting to give yourself a bigger creative challenge. But there's also the issue of precedent and expectation <laughs> and maybe self-consciousness that can then seep into the creation process where it sounds like with the first book, you know, you said you were kind of childlike in your approach, which is like a lack of which implies to me like a total lack of self-consciousness like did you feel like the weight of expectation was there were you putting pressure on yourself I think I felt more confident as like a writer and yes I think that comes with pressure um that I wanted to I wanted to to command language in a different way whereas I wasn't that concerned with language in my first book, I wanted to kind of, you know, drive language in a way that I have never done. And yeah, so I think, I think maybe, maybe that was pressure, but it was good, good pressure that I wanted to feel. And now I'm sort of in a different spot where I, I want to, now I just kind of want to sim simplify everything again and kind of, <laughs> you know, you know, write like four word sentences and, and not not be any longer than that just kind of 
keep everything really, really concise. So I'm just following whatever instinct that comes up. I, I, I get that. I especially get the concise thing. And you are published as the inaugural title, I believe, of like a new imprint. It's like a collaboration with Texas Tech University Press. And uh, is it DVAN? I, I know the acronym, yes. but it stands for Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network. Yes. So can you just talk about like the weight and how you experienced that and then what it was like to finally find a home and to find this home for the book? Yeah, it took a really long time. We, when my agent submitted the book, like kind of in small chunks. And so it was a lot of waiting, you know, for people to get back to us. And then, uh, and then the pandemic happened, but it, it was just waiting and, and a lot of times it was just silence, silence. It's like neither, you know, neither rejection or anything really. So that was, that was really difficult. Um, maybe that's even, maybe that's even worse. It's like, would you just reject me? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. That's how I feel (laughs) most of the time. Like, please reject me so I can move on. Right. (laughs) Um, so yeah, when, when I saw this, uh, the DVN TTUP opportunity. Um, my agent submitted the the manuscript there, um, and the the acceptance was like a it just it, it was just a huge relief. I think I think for a lot of maybe maybe you understand this or you know other writers that didn't just get a you know an auction or a deal like within a week and probably understand this too is like when you've been waiting for so long, it's not like elation that you feel. It's just relief that you can like breathe and you can be human again and, you know, not just like stuff your face with food, like a stress eat because of, you know, because you're anxiously waiting for an answer. So, and then the joy kind of start to like come in like little by little when I, when I start to realize like I'm in really good hands and, you know, I my editor really, really understands this book and and is is treating it with such respect and and feeling and that I felt like I felt really safe with this imprint being, you know, um, founded for Vietnamese American artists. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's founded uh, at least in part by Viet Thanh Win. Yes. Who won the Pilcher for the Sympathizer. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, it seems like such a great home and like, uh, especially for this book and like what, and this imprint, this publishing imprint didn't even exist when you were working on the book itself. Right. I mean, it's kind of, it kind of materialized just for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it didn't exist. So it felt, it felt like it's meant to be. And it's one of those times where, you know, where, where everything fits just right. And then you're like, you know, that all the times that I've waited uh, makes sense. So hindsight, I suppose. But it also makes me a lot more, like after this event happened, I, I now feel a lot more comfortable with with things that go wrong in the publishing world because I, I'm, I could kind of, I'm able to kind of just shrug it off because I feel like it's, 
you know, it's just not, it's not, if it's not mine, it's not mine. <laughs> well, and it's a crazy business. And I have spent years telling people that it only takes one, you know, whether it's an agent or a publisher, it's like you can get rejected a hundred times and then somebody says yes. And then it's like, oh yeah, you're published or you have an agent or, you know, <laughs> and everybody who knows you is like, of course, oh my God, you know, like they don't think about all the rejections that you went through. They only just think about the the success of the thing or the existence of the book in the world or whatever it is. And it's one thing to say that to somebody else with all of this conviction, but it's another thing to say it to yourself when you're going through the rejection process. Oh yeah. It can feel stressful. And I relate very much to this feeling of relief as the predominant emotion that one experiences when finally things work out and there's a fit. And there's and the timing is right. You know, it's not just a fit in terms of the material, but there also has has to be a fit in terms of the timing with respect to business realities, you mm. know, like their slate isn't full. They haven't spent their whole budget, whatever it happens to be, you know, like there's something kind of magical about any book that finds a home, you know, there has to be this confluence of, of things uh, in order for it to work. Yeah. Uh, many confluences of so many factors of, of finance and luck and faith <laughs> Um, yeah. And look at it now though. Your book got a starred review in Publishers Weekly and I don't know. I just, I want to underline that. Not that a review is the end all be all, but I think just not like on the surface, we see books that get starred reviews and we would automatically assume like, oh, they must've been haggling over this book in the publishing world. There must've been like a, a crazy bidding war over 24 <laughs> hours. But it's important to note that a work of, uh, great merit might be a difficult sell because of the challenges that it presents or the ways in which it might deviate from perceived, what's the word? Like, like I don't know, like perceived like popular notions of how a novel should be if it's going to be some big bestseller or the way of, I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes people have an idea of how a book should be. And if a book deviates from that, then the marketplace might be scared of it a little bit or might shy away because they feel like they won't know where it fits. A lot of times hybrid works do this where they don't know how to categorize it. You know, it's like, is it a, is it a memoir or is it a novel? Is it genre? You know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you go a year and a half and then it finds a home and it's a wonderful novel that just needed you know, uh, some true believers in the right fit and the right confluence. And I just want listeners who might be out there struggling or dealing with rejection to understand that because it can be easy to miss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, 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 you know, the people who, who have a vested interest in the commercial side of things are not necessarily, um, you know, going to advocate for for difficult or challenging works. It's it's a funny maybe parallel, but I've been watching a lot of Shark Tank, <laughs> do you know, and you know, it's just so funny to me. Like these things that become millions, multi-million um, companies are like, you know, like a screen fixer that you can kind of air dry onto your screen. And, you know, they sell that on QVC and that, and that, you know, becomes like a multi-million dollar company or um, just 
really to me hideous <laughs> sport <laughs> like uh, sportwear like designs that I'm like who's gonna wear this and that becomes a more you know multi-million dollar um, company as well it is it is really hard to live with the with the reality when you're when you're just dealing with rejection after rejection is true that you can only you can only live with it in hindsight <laughs> Of course, like, yeah, we wish we could be all like Zen like and like Buddhist monks that can give ourselves all the all the internal validation that we need to survive. But it's really hard to to keep that to sustain that over time and not deal with that feeling of like, am I delusional <laughs> about my work? Like what, you know, yeah, I, I totally, th those feelings totally creep in for me. And it's not good. Yeah, it's, it's not good because it prevents you from, from doing other work. Hmm. So how do you do the work? I, I've done a little bit of like snooping around online. I know you're a big fan of coffee and writing in the early morning. Has anything changed? <laughs> <laughs> no, not much. Um, yeah, I'm a creature of habit. I, I write in the morning. I drink coffee while I write and I listen to music. Um, I always try to find um, the right song before I start a new project because I'm gonna be with I'm gonna be with that song for a long time. Um, it's one usually song. Some yeah, one one to three songs. Do you listen to them on a loop? Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I get that though. It's like a song or a, like a a trio of songs that captures the mood of the of the thing puts you in that headspace yeah it it triggers um and, and i also think it it triggers discipline too because if you just return to your desk like working on the same project every day when you put on the song it helps to it really helps to immediately um transport me to that project without me having to do much of the work oh yeah like cues you it, like cues you yes psychologically to like it's like this is what this means i've got to work it's like pavlov or something you know? <laughs> yeah what so what song for constellations what song or what songs were you listening to i listened to uh in the mood for love it's a soundtrack to a, a movie i think there are about three songs three or four songs on the on the on the soundtrack that i listened to on repeat what movie is this? In the mood for love? Is it an old classic, or am I misremembering? It's it's a it's a classic. I actually haven't seen the movie. Like I'm afraid to watch it because well now I want to watch it, but I I was really afraid to watch it while writing the book because I didn't I didn't know if that was gonna influence me. I just love I I discover the songs and I I love the songs. So <laughs> are there are there vocals or is it just instrumental? There are vocals, but they're not words. Oh. Yeah. I want to talk with you uh, about your immigration experience uh, and it, its circular nature before we, we part company, because I think this is fascinating. Like, you moved, you were born in Vietnam and spent the first 12 years of your life there and then moved to the States. But now you are moving back to or have moved back to Vietnam. So it's kind of come full circle you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm moving. Uh, I'm moving officially to Vietnam in about 
uh, in about three weeks. And I think part of that is about starting my own family and and just having kind of a primal call <laughs> um, to to go back and you know and 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 giving I guess my my daughter a chance to be immersed in that environment in a way that I can't really communicate alone in the states. And, and also to, for myself, um, to experience it as an adult, because I think I have a very childlike view of Vietnam. Like at this point, it's become like, like a, a myth to me. Right. So I really, I really need to bridge, you know, my psyche with the real place. And, and I, I guess I, I don't want to live in that myth anymore. I want to, to be there and experience the country and my and my family as they are is that where your mom lives and where your family lives uh, it's where my extended family live my mom is in the states still oh, oh she is okay and what part of vietnam is it ho chi minh city is that where you'll be yes okay that sounds great i'm like one of these people who's constantly like i'm a i love travel related content and i'm always like looking online at these lists of like best places in the world to live and best cost of living and everything. And Vietnam is often up there. I think it's, it's an easy, easy place to, to be happy in. But, you know, of course, I'm not, I'm not really there yet. Yeah, so. talk, well, I'll talk to you now for your next book. We'll find out how it goes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of this next book, I know that you, I don't know, you said you, I, I read that you're working on a third novel and it looks to be about punishment. True or false? Has anything changed? <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I, it, so <laughs> I do think that it is about people who are punished and, and punishment itself. My, my first title for it was punished and punishment. Um, but then now my, current working title is uh, The Seven Stages of Girl Making. So um, maybe there's a correlation to like <laughs> being being a girl and what that means and how that's related to punishment. Yeah. So yeah, that's my 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 third my third novel. And how far how far along is it? I have a full draft. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes, yes. My agent is reading it now. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So no yeah. pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I also think there's something kind of logical and familiar about, especially like an expecting mother, like getting a, a manuscript done prior to the arrival of her child. I've heard this multiple times. Oh, absolutely. That was like a big motivation. And I was like, I got it. I have to, I have to be done so then I can just maybe not write for a year and be okay with that. Right. It'll be, I mean, it'll definitely be more challenging with a kid and with the, especially in that first year. But the other thing that I've heard more than once is that even, even in that there's like downtime where the baby's napping, you'll probably find yourself like writing on a notepad or typing into your phone or something like the impulse to write, if you've got it is kind of irrepressible. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, is that how you experienced it? Like as a father? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it didn't go away. The first year of having a child, or especially the first six months, you know, you're home so much. 
you just sort of cocoon because you've got to feed and you're not sleeping and it's a 24 seven kind of thing, especially for the mom, you know, because you're feeding, you know, the baby a, a lot and there's something sort of lovely about it in a way. It's kind of like what we were talking about either earlier in this conversation or before we got on the line about my knee injury and how it has enforced a kind of lovely sloth upon me. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you sort of surrender to it, you know, what are you going to do? And that's how I remember it anyway. But I don't know. Babies are great. They smell, yeah. they smell good. They're so sweet. You're going to have Aww. a great, you're going to have a great time, but it sounds like you're going to have the baby in Vietnam. Yeah, that's that's the plan right now. But I, I I like what you said about just like you're with you're sort of, you know. I really look forward to, like, just being an animal, <laughs> almost. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how long I will enjoy that, but I look. I've never, you know, for somebody who lived so much inside my head, even the pregnancy. I'm almost five months now. But some of the moments, like this morning, like my cramps was so terrible that I was just on all four, like kind of howling alone in, in this cabin um, before I called my husband. And and I was, you know, and if I was outside of my body looking at myself even just a year ago, it's like, what is she doing? Like, what is this? You know, she looks crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm not even, the baby isn't even here yet. And so that's those kind of thing that drives you back inside your own body and like reminds you of your mortality is really, yeah, I, I look forward to all those new experiences. They're coming. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm happy for you. It's wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful to be celebrating the publication of a book and to be expecting a baby uh, and then just finished a third novel, you know, for at least finished a significant manuscript. So Kudos to you for all that you have going on. I wish you all the best with it. And I thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk with me. I'm glad that at no point during this interview did you drop down to all fours and start howling. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> that would have been, you would have been breaking new ground on the Other People podcast. So far that hasn't happened, but maybe one day. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I was slightly worried about it but i'm glad it didn't happen well and and you didn't go into like labor or anything either that hasn't happened either we have not had a live childbirth on the podcast yet but <laughs> we'll see what happens uh but thank you so much it's great to meet you and congratulations once again thank you so much brad it's been really really fun to talk to you all right everybody there we have it that is abigail Wynn rosewood and her new novel, Constellations of Eve, is available now from Divan and Texas Tech University Press. You can find Abigail on the internet at abigailrosewood.com. That is her official website. One more time, the novel is called Constellations of Eve. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get your copy immediately. Go sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at the Nervous Breakdown this episode is brought to you by Ig, publisher of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get your copy of my new novel wherever books are sold. Get it in trade paperback, get an ebook, the audiobook, read by me, whatever you choose, whatever you prefer. Again, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now from Ig. 
The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. That's almost 800 episodes and counting. This is a listener-supported show. The continuation of this podcast, its continued survival depends on your kind support. So if you like this program, if you get something from it, please know that you can support it for as little as $1 per month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. Again, you can support this show for as little as $1 a month. $1 in the hat every month. It's that easy. Or if you are a person of greater means and you would like to support the show at a higher level, you're welcome to do that too. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday. I will write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, for example, you can rate it and review it, and that helps the show find new listeners. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen if you haven't done that already. Also, don't forget that the Other People podcast has its own app. Are you aware of this? The Other People with Brad Listy app is free, and it is available wherever apps are available. You can also uh, listen to this show on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, please know that the Other People podcast has its own YouTube channel and the entire archive is available right there on YouTube. So search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and then subscribe to the channel. It's free. Just press the subscribe button. It helps the show find new listeners when you do that. It's algorithmic. That's what happens. Something happens. So it's good to be with you again. I appreciate you guys tuning in. I will be back next week with another conversation with another author who wrote another book. 